Our passage is Luke chapter 4, Luke 4, 31 to 44, 31 to 44. Jesus preaches and he performs miracles. He preaches and performs miracles. And we'll see the response to that and learn some lessons from it. Luke 4, 31, 31 to 37. We'll read that section at a time, one section at a time. And he came to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on Sabbath days. And they were continually amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And there was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he went out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began discussing with one another and saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was getting out into every locality in the surrounding district. Verse 31, he goes to Capernaum. He goes down because Nazareth, where he was in the previous section, he was in Nazareth, it's on a hill, and Capernaum is by the Sea of Galilee, and so it's lower elevation. He comes down to Capernaum. Capernaum was a place where he performed many miracles. He had much ministry there. It is one of the cities of Galilee in the north, outside of Judah and outside of Jerusalem. We know from the previous uh, passage that he did much ministry in Galilee because Isaiah the prophet predicted that he would do so. It was God's will for him to do so in Galilee where there were some Jews and Gentiles. It was a mixed region. He preaches there. And it says he was teaching them on Sabbath days. Of course, we know he was teaching them at other times whenever he could and would. But specifically, it says he was teaching them on Sabbath days, as was his custom. We see this earlier in chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. It was Jesus' custom. Now, it wasn't his personal custom in terms of his personal preference. By custom and practice, the Bible does not mean he just preferred it to do it that way, but we don't have to do it that way. That's not what the point is. The point is, as a faithful man of God, as the supreme example and the Son of God who came into the world to be an example for us in every way, to fulfill the law, he did what the law required, that is, worship God on the Sabbath day, worship as a community on the Sabbath day. He did so faithfully. And not only that, but he was a teacher. He was a gifted, able teacher, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath day. That's the reason to gather. The reason to gather is to worship God as creator and redeemer, but then also to hear a message in relation to those truths that God is creator and redeemer and that the message would come from the scriptures. There would be scripture, scripture readings, sections of the Old Testament that would be read and then a lesson would be presented based on that reading. 
That's what they practice. Jesus did so. When Jesus did so, he's showing that that is the faithful way for us as believers and disciples of Christ to also do. We should also be that way. Acts 2, 42 to 47 explains that this is what the apostles did. Hebrews also, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 explains this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. A part of keeping the confession faithfully is stimulating one another to love and good deeds by gathering together, and when we gather, we encourage one another by the Scriptures. The, the epistle to the Hebrews which would have been read and taught in the churches, is called a word of exhortation in Hebrews 13.22. Exhortation or encouragement is what is necessary from the Scriptures. Jesus knew this. Jesus modeled it. Jesus did this. And this is what our churches should be about. So we ought to go in order to hear the Word of God. It doesn't say that Jesus was... Uh, presenting a, a carnival or a circus. He wasn't a comedian. He wasn't doing things like that. He was going there to preach and teach the Word of God so that people might know God better. Worship Him, the true and living God, and not worship any idol. Well, Jesus' approach was a unique approach. It was a different approach because it says in verse 32, "...and they were continually amazed at His teaching." For his message was with authority. They were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. When Jesus spoke, as we saw in the previous section in this chapter, when he spoke, he read the scripture, and then he explained what it meant with finality and with certainty, with clarity. He, he knew what it meant, and then he explained to the people what it meant, and he did it with authority and finality. This is also what happened at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, 28, the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. They were amazed at his teaching because it came with authority. That's what Luke is telling us as well. In Capernaum, Jesus was teaching this way, and the people were amazed because it's contrary to what they were used to hearing. They were used to hearing hemming and hawing. They were used to hearing uh, about doubts and questions and skeptic, uh, skepticism and uncertainties. They were used to hearing these kinds of things coming out of the mouths of their teachers, which is similar to what happens today in academia. Today in academia, even Christian academia, the professors do not say, thus says the Lord. This is what the Bible says. Very, very, very few professors teach the Bible that way. They are usually teaching that there are six and a half opinions on this issue, and then there's eight opinions on this other issue, and I'll just present them all to you and leave you with it, and you can decide for yourself. That's what they do. They don't tell you clearly what the Bible says, and they assume that the Bible is unclear, and then they spread more confusion. They assume it's unclear, and then they spread more doubt and confusion to their hearers. That's not the way it ought to be. 
Why is the Word of God given unless it's given for us to know it and understand it? It's supposed to be accessible to the common man because that's what God intended. He intended for the common man to hear it, to understand it, to read it, study it, and obey it. Obey everything that's in it. And this will always be the case. There will be very, very few who actually teach it and teach it the right way, and teach it properly. It will always be that way. This is why there are exhortations such as 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul had to say this because everybody else around him were teaching and preaching human wisdom, but not Paul. He's saying that that's not the way it's supposed to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, he further explains, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate? For these things. For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. The many around Paul were peddling the word of God. They referred to the word of God here or there in order to make money off of it, greedy money, not teaching it faithfully. When they didn't teach it faithfully, they taught it for sordid gain. If one doesn't teach it faithfully, one teaches for sordid Gain. That's the implication here as well. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. They don't preach, Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. Christ is the one, and anyone who doesn't preach Christ walks in craftiness and adulterates the word of God. So, Jesus preached the gospel. He preached the Bible. He did not preach and, and model that we, people and pastors should preach about themselves, but to preach the word of God. 
This is why it was amazing. Now, something else happens. Verse 33, Luke 4, 33. And there was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. This man in the synagogue, notice here, he is a religious man, but this religious man is demon-possessed. We might say there's a lot of people in churches who, who might be demon-possessed because, it's, it's because we see the way they behave. We see their addictions. We see their words. We see their erratic behavior. Well, this is a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. He does not control himself. A demon controls him. A devil controls him. A fallen angel, here called an unclean demon. Unclean because all that is spiritually filthy and, and dirty comes from that. That's the source. He is possessed by this demon. So, encountering Christ, the demon cries out with a loud voice, Ha! Huh, wh what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon does not want to encounter Christ. The demon wants nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Notice, Jesus of Nazareth, that confirms his human nature. Right? He's, his human nature. And then... I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That, that shows His holiness and that He comes from God and has a divine nature. They know, the demons know, He's fully man and fully God. Fully God and fully man without sin. He's holy. They know that. They know all the, these factual truths about Christ. They know it. And then what do they say? Have you come to destroy us? On another occasion, in Matthew 8, 29, have you come to destroy us before the time? They ask on another occasion. Before the time? They know there is a day of judgment, and they know that hell is for them and all the people who follow them to go there. For hell has been prepared. The eternal fire, Matthew 25, 41, has been prepared for these demons and all who follow these demons. Matthew 25, 41 and 46. This eternal punishment or eternal fire, hell, is intended for them. They know that. And they don't want to experience it until the right time. This means that they also know that their doom, their eternal destiny is fixed and they can't change it. They have no repentance and they will not be able to change it. There are chosen angels, and then there are also reprobate angels. Chosen angels, 1 Timothy 5.21, and this is an example of a wicked angel or an unclean angel, a fallen angel demon right here. There are two categories, two main categories, and they know what their destiny is. Now this teaches us, according to James, James tells us in James 2.19, you believe God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now notice here, the demons here do not want anything to do with Christ. What do we have to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? They don't want that. And when they think about their doom, as it is revealed in the scriptures, they know what their doom is. They shudder, they tremble, they shake and quake. 
They want nothing to do with Christ because they know eventually it'll be the end of them. Now, by implication from James 2, the demon, in a, in a measure, is better than a false believer. Absolutely. A demon is better than a false believer. Uh, someone with false faith, he, he says, yes, yes, I know the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, he died on the cross. Oh, yes, yes, he rose from the dead. Yes, the Bible teaches this and that. I know all of that. But none of that moves him. None of that moves him to repentance and faith. None of that changes his life. None of that causes him to tremble and have the fear of God in him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Or Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but afterwards are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, Jesus said. So, a bogus believer is worse than a demon because he pretends to be a believer, but he never trembles. It doesn't move him to have any kind of a spiritual, true spiritual experience. The demons tremble, but not the, the man of false faith. He doesn't tremble. So, then what does Jesus do? Verse 35, Luke 4, 35. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Jesus silences and then exercises this demon. He removes the demon from the man. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he went out of him without doing him any harm. So the demon causes this man to be thrown down in the middle of them all, but then he doesn't harm him. Jesus does not permit that. And then he goes out. The demon separates. This is an exorcism. This is a real event. Luke writes, according to Luke 1, 1 to 4, about the exact truth, about the consecutive events, about what exactly took place. This is what he's doing. He's writing like this. That means that we know Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person. The history books, and even in the second century onward, the early history books about the, uh, written by Romans and Jews, and even in the first century, Josephus, who wrote about A.D. 90, he, an unbeliever, and all these unbelievers, and then many believers, they all testify to the factual history of Jesus of Nazareth. They all testify to the, his existence. Not all of them believed his miracles and, and, and his claims, but they all knew he was real. And they all say he did miracles. Or, or a couple of them, they will say he did miracles. The Jews, though, say he did it by the power of the devil. They do acknowledge he did miracles, but they say he did it by the power of the devil. Just like it says in Matthew 12. They did it right when Jesus was alive and performing the miracles. But no. According to the scriptures... Jesus was not only real, but he performed these miracles by the power of God, and these were real incidents. Real incidents. This is not fiction. These are not legends. We're not dealing with fairy tales. Nothing like that. They're just not children's stories. That's not what's happening here. These are real incidents. This is necessary to say because there's always the skeptic. 
And even those that teach the Bible in many places, in churches and institutions, who say that these things didn't happen. This was just their best way of describing psychological problems or mental and chemical problems that they had, chemical imbalances that they had. That's all that this is. It's because these are primitive people, you know. They, they're not as sophisticated as we people are today. So this was their best way of explaining psychological and chemical problems. No. The devil is real. The demons are real. And Jesus really did perform this miracle and heal this man who was possessed by a demon. He did do it. And we ought to believe that. Well, the people, look at what the contemporaries, they knew it was real. Look at verse 36. And amazement came upon them all, and they began discussing with one another and saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The people knew. The many eyewitnesses saw it. They knew what was happening. They knew that that man was in misery, possessed by that demon, and then he was delivered and at peace. They knew that. They saw it. But they just were perplexed. So the veracity of the miracles is unquestioned by the eyewitnesses. The veracity, the truthfulness, and the factuality of these miracles is unquestioned. The only issue with some of the skeptics is, where did it come from? Did it come from God, or did it come from the devil? They say the devil, but the scriptures say from God. From God. And then, notice, what is this message? They have yet to connect the miracles with the message in terms of when the miracle happens, okay, then what's the point? What am I supposed to do or believe? They have yet to do that. We know from other places that the people of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, such as in Matthew 11, 20 to 30, that they refused to repent of their sins even though Jesus did miracles in their midst. This is one of the cities we're describing here. So the miracles themselves are of no benefit, of no avail to them, unless they believe the message associated with the miracle. The message has to be a true message that they believe. Only then can the miracle benefit. Can the miracles stimulate them to listen and contemplate and believe the message that accompanies it. Otherwise, it's useless. And otherwise, it's also, and not only useless, a true miracle is, becomes useless to them, but also they become susceptible to false miracles. They could be susceptible to deluding influences and false miracles, such as in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-12, the Antichrist will do so. The Antichrist. And according to Deuteronomy 13, false prophets and dreamers, they do the same, and they, they perform some miracle, and then... Their false message makes them worship a false god. So, in this case, it's the people, they needed to associate the miracle with the true message. Only then will it benefit them. This shows that even today, when people claim to do this or that miracle, the associated message with it, the words that accompany that miracle if they do not accord with Scripture, it is evidence that the miracle is a false miracle and that the preachers and the teachers, the pastors, the miracle workers are frauds. 
They, they cannot be trusted because if they make you worship a false god, then their miracles are false too. Their miracles should not be trusted. But we have to be on guard because they say Jesus. The, the false preachers will say Jesus, Son of God, Gospel, Kingdom of God. They'll use these kinds of words, but just because they use biblical words doesn't mean that they're telling the biblical truth. False teachers use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning and common words with an uncommon meaning. They'll say Jesus, but according to 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4, there is another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. There are many such. Galatians 1 also says that there is a different gospel that is preached by many people. And that different gospel is an accursed gospel, and those who believe it are accursed. So it's necessary when somebody says Jesus, Christ, Son of God, Bible, Kingdom of God, salvation, forgiveness, repent, believe. When anybody says these words, it's important to examine those words according to the biblical meaning of those words. Otherwise, it's false. Then, verse 37 says, And the report about him was getting out into every locality in the surrounding district. Jesus became a buzz. He was a buzz. Everybody was talking about him. Everybody was talking about him implicitly because of the miracles, not because of the content of his message, but implicitly it's here because of his miracles. So he became newsworthy. He became newsworthy. Something strange, unusual happened today, and they go and tell their friends and relatives all about it. So everybody gets to hear about him. We'll see more of that and what Jesus does about that. Verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they made request of him on her behalf. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately arose and began to wait on them. He left the synagogue, and he's still in, in Capernaum because it's likely that Simon's house was there in Capernaum. And it says there his mother-in-law was suffering from this sickness of high fever. So they request him to heal her. So he stands over her, he rebukes the fever, and then the fever leaves. It happens immediately because it says she immediately arose and began to wait on them. Just like the preceding miracle, so this miracle, the immediate nature of Jesus' declaration and then the healing shows that this is a miracle of God. There's no hocus-pocus. There's, there's no potion. There's no uh, w delayed uh, response. Well, he, I say it now, but then maybe seven days from now or ten days from now or one month from now, something will happen. Nothing like that. We ought to note that the immediate nature of these miracles is further proof that they are miracles of God. They are miracles of God. And then notice, after she is immediately healed, she waits on them. She serves them. As is, as is the, the command of Scripture for 
the, the woman or the wife, and in this case, the mother-in-law of Simon, Simon Peter, she knows her responsibility, and in most likely in gratitude, in thankfulness, she knows she's healed, and immediately she wants to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord and the others. It said, began to wait on them. That's what she wants to do. Because she knows that she should um, take care of the house, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. 1 Timothy 5, 14 and 15. But there's a, we have another example of this. In Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, 13 to 15, Lydia, who sold purple fabrics, expensive fabrics, she heard the gospel, she and other women heard the gospel, at least one other woman, it says women were there at the riverside, Paul and Luke are there, and they're speaking to her the word of God, she believes the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul, and then it says, then she urged us to stay in her household, she was baptized and she urged us to stay in her household, so they stay in her household, she wants to show hospitality, just like Simon's mother-in-law does. She, she wants to do what she knows is her duty to do and in gratitude. Right after God does something for Simon's mother-in-law, in gratitude and in duty, she does what she needs to do and the same with Lydia. She does so in gratitude. She urges them and then they concede and stay there and she practices hospitality for them as well. This is another indication this is an indication of true faith, true faith and repentance. This is similar to the pre previous chapter in Luke 3, 7 to 14, when John the Baptist was preaching to the crowds who were coming for baptism, and they asked him, they were completely devoid and uh, did not know, well, what should I do then? If you're saying I should repent, I shouldn't be the same man I used to be, then what should I do? And you know, he told the rich, to share their clothing and food with those who did not have. He told the tax collectors not to cheat or only collect what you're supposed to collect. And he told the soldiers, don't take any money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So they know their station. They know their calling in life now from John the Baptist and they're supposed to do that. And that's what she does here. She waits on them. So this is an example of true faith. That when a miracle happens, you don't just go around talking about it. Hey, look what happened. This is, this is neat and cool. No, you humbly serve the Lord. You humbly do the things of God. And that will show true faith and true repentance. Now, verses 40 and 41. And while the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. And demons also were coming out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Son of God. And rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. Now, there's many people being healed, and he lays his hands on them. Now, this, this action of laying hands on one who is sick is also repeated in James, in James chapter 5. This practice of laying hands on a sick person is here repeated in James 5, 13. 
Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Praying over and anointing is, is mentioned here for those who are sick. So he is praying over by laying hands on them and he's healing them. This is showing that the desire that, that the, the prayer has for the sick, that God, we want you, as being a participant in this person's suffering, we want you to be merciful to this one who is sick and lift him up. We want you to lift up this one who is sick. So this is a way, of, a physical way of showing our dependence on God and our desire to have this one who is sick healed. Jesus does this and he heals them. The demons now this time in 41, they say you are the son of God and Jesus doesn't allow them to speak. He wants them to keep quiet because they knew him to be the Christ. Now why would that be a problem? Because they knew him to be the Christ. Well, it may be a problem in one of two ways, or perhaps even both ways. For one, we have another example of a demon saying the truth and then being rebuked. Saying the truth and then being rebuked. And we have this in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, it says, 1616, and it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, that is an evil spirit, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She's saying something true, right? But it's the demon saying it. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Here also, Paul, he puts up with it for a time and then commands that the spirit stop doing this. So Paul, in a sense, he doesn't want an evil spirit telling the truth like this, going around telling everybody like this. This is also what Jesus does, because they knew him to be the Christ. Because God desires those who truly know him to speak the truth. He wants those who truly know him to speak the truth. An example of this is in Psalm 50, verse 16. Psalm 50, 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silence. 
You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. This may, might be one reason. Another reason that Jesus doesn't want this to, to be said by them is he doesn't want things to spread and get out of hand. Things to spread and get out of hand. For example, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000, after he fed the 5,000, the multitudes try to make him king. Notice this. John 6, 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. It says again. Withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. We'll see that he's going to do that in our passage in Luke. He's going to seek to be alone. So, he knew that if he did some things too much and people spoke up too much, that these kinds of upheavals would happen. There would be these riots and these commotions, these political commotions to make him king because this guy is going to meet all our needs like that. And he didn't want that to happen. It was necessary for things to happen gradually and in time and eventually for him to be arrested, put on trial, and then crucified on the cross. That's why he withdraws. And notice too, we have something similar here. Luke 4.42. Luke 4.42. And when day came, he departed and went to a lonely place. There, there he, he has just been doing ministry and a lot of miracles and the people are talking about him everywhere. And it says he goes to a lonely place. He goes to a lonely place and the multitudes were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. He, they tried to keep him from going away from them. They, he, he was popular. The crowds wanted him all the time around him. Not because of him and not because of his message, but because of his miracles. They wanted him around. They were pressing in on him, so he sought to be alone. Sought to be alone. Sometimes he's alone to pray. We'll see that in Luke 6. But sometimes he's alone because it's getting out of hand and he doesn't want them to come and take him by force and make him king. Things of that nature. Because then, notice what he says. Verse 43, But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So, by the way, when it says he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea, Judea most often is a specific region of the land of Israel. That is that southern region where Jerusalem is the center. But sometimes... Rarely, Judea is used to describe just the whole land of the Jews, which is Galilee and Judea, and even the eastern side of the Jordan. All of that just called Judea because the Jews lived there, and that has been their historical homeland. That's what Luke means. I say that because skeptics of the Bible say, well, wasn't he in Galilee? Well, wasn't he in, in, in uh, Capernaum and Nazareth? These are Galilean cities. Why does it say Judea here? The Bible contradicts itself. Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. No, the skeptics don't know what they're talking about. They don't know that Judea can be used for a specific place, but also a general place. So, 
That's what's happening in that case. But then, what lesson can we learn from Jesus going around places preaching and not letting a massive crowd in one place seize him and take control of him and, and keep him there? Notice, this is very, very different from the way that modern preachers are, modern preachers and pastors. It's, it's very different. The moment they get a crowd, they will come, keep going back and, and back and back, and they'll say they're preaching the gospel when they have a huge crowd. They'll say they're preaching the gospel, but they're not preaching the true gospel, because if they were preaching the true gospel, they would keep pushing back on the crowds. They would keep saying to the crowds, you brood of vipers. He, they would keep saying to the proud, uh, crowds, you worms, you maggots, like the scriptures call us in our sinful state. They would keep pushing back on the crowds. This is the way true prophets, Jesus, and true apostles constantly preached. They wanted true conversions, and they wanted people to experience the love and grace of God, the mercy of God. They wanted all that, but they didn't want it to, it to happen uh, fictitiously. They didn't want it to happen pretentiously. They wanted it to happen in truth. So they, it was necessary to push back on the crowds. Jesus did so, but not the modern preacher. When the modern preacher doesn't do it, everybody says he's great and wonderful. Everybody says he preaches the true gospel. Everybody donates millions upon millions of dollars. And then he builds one or two or three mansions or a huge compound and has his private jets and is able to see the President of the United States and this and that. This is what happens. This is what happens with modern false preachers, but not Jesus. He knew he needed to push back on the crowd. Then, notice too in verse 43, But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus knows his fundamental ministry is preaching and teaching. He knows that. He knows his fundamental ministry is not the miracles, or today, it's not the clown shows, it's not the juggling tricks, it's not the uh, uh, comedic acts from, from the pulpit, it's not talking about psychology and environmentalism and recycling and things of that nature that all kinds of stuff is talked about in the pulpit. That's not what Jesus preached. He preached, he preached, and he preached the kingdom of God. He didn't share stories about his own life and what happened to him when he was three and a half years old as, as his grandmother relates it to him, you know, that he forgot about what his grandmother told him. And I just, you, you know, he doesn't do all that kind of stuff. He doesn't say what happened on the ball field and things of that nature. Those things are irrelevant. They are of no eternal value. He preached the Bible. He preached and preached the Bible because that's what people need. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. It is the Word of life, the Word of truth. It is the Word of grace. Everything, that's what we need. And that's what he preached. He, he also calls it the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of this world. All the kingdoms of this world, and all the petty kingdoms that we build up for ourselves, are all passing away. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. That's what counts. Doing the will of God and being a part of His kingdom. 
Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will provide our needs. With food and covering, with these we shall be content. But, not with, uh, no, but no silliness. No silliness and nothing that is uh, temporary and, and feeble and transient. Nothing like that do we need. We need to know and enter the kingdom of God. And that's what he preached. A word of clarification. The kingdom of God is the gospel, and the gospel is the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul speaks like this in Acts 20, 24 to 25, Acts 28, 30 to 31. He's preaching the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God to the Apostle Paul is the gospel. The gospel is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the gospel. They, they are synonyms. And there are aspects that are different. Certainly we have a king and God is our king and we enter into that kingdom. But what is the means of entrance? The means of entrance is faith in the gospel. Faith in Christ and his death and resurrection. That's what it is. It's necessary to say this because there are people who say kingdom of God is different from kingdom of heaven. And they also say Jesus preached the kingdom of God and Paul preached justification by faith, as though they are different. No. Jesus also preached justification by faith. For example, Luke 18, 9 to 14, he said of the, 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 the tax collector and the Pharisee, he said of the tax collector who said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner, he says, I tell you, this man went to his house or went to his home justified. Justified. He was justified when he prayed in the temple and, and knew that he was a sinner who needed the, the mercy of God. He was justified. So that's justification by faith right there. Jesus preached justification by faith and kingdom of God and that he gave his life a ransom for many and all those things. The same with the Apostle Paul and that's the same with the prophets. They all preach the same gospel. The one and only gospel. Let's do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Lord, we pray that you, you will make us those who are faithful in preaching and teaching, that you will also give us ears that desire this. And Father, transform us and renew us. Make us like Simon's mother-in-law, and make us like Lydia, and make us like the many others that you changed and brought out of darkness into light. And renew us, Lord, day by day. Renew us, change us, and also for our, our loved ones, we pray that you will save them from their sins. We pray that everyone that we encounter, everyone that we have offered prayers uh, on their behalf, that they would turn from darkness and into your marvelous light. In Jesus' name, amen.